Hello again, everyone. It's great to see you all. Some parts of Scripture are quite hard in every sense of that word. This is one of them, so I'm going to pray for us as we look at it together. And I'll uh, pray that our microphone sorts out. There we go. Our Heavenly Father, uh, your word is sometimes hard, uh, hard to understand at points, uh, but hard also in the topics it raises. And so as we approach this difficult passage, we pray that you'll help me to teach it clearly and faithfully. Uh, but we especially pray that you'll give us all uh, hearts that are ready to sit under it and respond to it in faith and repentance. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, last week uh, we heard some very hard-hitting words of scripture, didn't we? Uh, one of our preachers uh, at one of our other services last week joked that it was our Mother's Day special last week on, uh, on Romans 1. Uh, for Mother's Day, we had a special talk on the seriousness of sin and the reality of God's wrath. So there you go. Uh, and so last week here at 9am, Troy, very helpfully, I thought, uh, showed us humanity's greatest problem. People think our greatest problem uh, is climate change or, or cost of living pressures or, or whatever it is. Uh, but no, our greatest problem is our sin. And in particular, our greatest problem is our sin and the righteousness of God. So our greatest problem is God's righteous judgment. Uh, and so last week, the passage told us that the essence of sin is that we fail to recognise and honour God. Uh, the essence of sin is not the outworking in the actions, but it's the attitude to God, that, that, that we do not give him the honour, we do not give him the praise, we do not give him the thanks he deserves. Instead of worshipping God, we saw in chapter 1, we worship the things he has created. Uh, whether that's an idol made of wood or, frankly, in our modern world, the worship of ourselves, part of God's creation. Uh, and because of that, it says God hands us over to sin. He lets us do whatever our, our sinful hearts want to do. And so chapter one was a pretty graphic picture of the sin in our world, wasn't it? You know, from, from sexual immorality through to greed uh, and envy and, and arrogance, it was a pretty dark picture. And I think there would have been two different types of people sitting here listening to Troy's sermon last week on chapter one. Most of us would fall into one of these two camps although some of us managed to fall into both camps. Uh, there would have been people here who'd be thinking, that is me. There would have been people here who think, that is me, who, who Paul is describing. That is exactly what I was like before I became a Christian, or perhaps that's still me. I, I still struggle uh, with these things that, that Paul is talking about. That, that is one group who's listening. But there's another who might have been thinking something along these lines, you tell them, Paul. That is exactly what our world is like. I'm so glad I'm not like that. I remember when I used to play rugby many years ago, uh, and uh, I remember one game where I, I felt in my self-righteousness the other team were getting away with things, uh, and finally the, the, the ref sent off one of the other players, and I said, good on you, ref, well done. And he said, well, you can go too. And I, because <laughs> he said, you're worse than him. So... You see, when we, when we do that, when we respond to last week by saying, yes, isn't our world terrible, you, you know, like that, there is actually something right about that reaction because too many modern Christians, I think, have become inoculated against sin. We start to, to, to talk like our world. I hear Christians talking like our world and describing things God says are awful as lifestyle choices. You know, no, God hates sin and, and so should we. But it is very easy to go from that to starting to think that we are better than those people Paul is describing. 
And those two groups listening are nothing new because you see in the Roman church, there would have been Gentiles sitting there saying that is exactly what I was like. I was an idol worshiper. And I used to do all, all, all these things. I used to do this. The sin Paul is describing is my life. Uh, but many of the Jews who were there and some God-fearing Gentiles would have said, well, that wasn't me. I've always worshipped the one true God. I've never gone and, and worshipped idols. I've, I've never even heard of some of those sins Paul is describing. I didn't even know people did that sort of stuff. I'm so glad I don't deserve God's wrath like they do. And it's to that person that Paul now turns, or perhaps that part of you, if you're in both camps. It's actually really clever how he does it. Do you notice how in chapter one, uh, it was all them and they, those people uh, over there, but now he changes to you. And he says, hang on, don't you judge, because I'm talking about you too. Uh, and so what I've called this first section is God's wrath on the self-righteous. Look with me from chapter two, verse one. It says, therefore, any one of you who judges is without excuse. For when you judge another, you condemn yourself, since you, the judge, do the same things. So he's talking to the Jews here uh, who thought perhaps because they had God's law, they were, they were better than these other people. But he's saying, you be very careful because you might have God's law, but do you actually keep it? Look at verse three. He says, do you really think any one of you who judges those who do such things yet do the same, that you'll escape God's judgment? Or down at verse 13, he says, For the hearers of the law are not righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be declared righteous. He suppose you might have God's law and you might know it really well, but do you actually do it? Really? I think at this point, Paul has in his mind Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. I think that's, that's what's in the, in the back of his mind. Uh, you, you mightn't have done all these things I've said they do, but, but can you really tell me you haven't hated can you really tell me you haven't been envious in your heart? You haven't lusted? Can you, can you really tell me that, that you love God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength? That's what the law demands. Can, can you really tell me you've loved your neighbour as yourself? Because that's what the law demands. You see, we human beings, we are very, very good at judging others while excusing ourselves. It, it is a almost universal human trait. We're very, very good at seeing the sin in other people while excusing the sin in ourselves. I, I think of this in the sin of jealousy or envy. Jealousy or, or envy is always ugly, isn't it? You, you see it in other people and, and you think, how ugly is that? And then you turn in the same breath and say, gee, I'd like what she's got. We're, we're incredible, our ability to, to judge others by a different standard to what we judge ourselves, seeing other people's guilt crystal clear while ignoring our own sin. You see, knowing God's law wasn't meant to make them feel superior. Having the law wasn't, wasn't meant to make them judge other people. It was meant to lead them to see their own sin and then repent and turn to God for grace. Look at verse 4. He says, Or do you despise the riches of his God's kindness, restraint and patience, not recognising that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? So now if you want to say, look at me, I'm much better than those awful sinners over there. Paul is saying, be very, very, very careful. And verse 5 rams at home. He says, but because of your hardness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. You are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath. And really, this is the big point of this chapter. This is the point to take away. 
all have sinned, there is no one righteous, all people deserve God's judgment. We all love to compare ourselves to others. It gives us comfort to think there are worse sinners than me. But Paul says, don't worry about others. Worry about you. Worry about yourself. There is a day of wrath. Worry about you on that day. So as hard as it is, let's think about that day, what Paul calls the day of wrath. I said this was a difficult passage in every sense. Uh, Last week, we saw how God's wrath is actually on display now. So last week was really interesting, I think, in chapter 1. We, we think of God's wrath as being in the future, uh, and that's what we'll talk about today. Uh, but actually, last week we heard God's wrath is on display now, because as people throw themselves into sin, that they think they're showing their freedom to be what they want to be, you know, do what they want to do, but actually it's God's judgment on them, handing them over to their self-destructive behaviour. Troy used the image last week of the, the father who catches his son smoking a cigarette, and the father says, well, smoke the whole pack until you're sick. That, that's why I don't know what the vaping equivalent is of that. But, but uh, you get the point. You see, the further we move away from God's ideas of right and wrong, the more our world is a place of despair and no hope. Don't buy the lie that, that sin brings joy. And so look at our world as, as it's got more and more removed. Uh, has the world grown in happiness? It's getting worse and worse. Because the, the more you throw yourself into, the sea, into sin, the more God's wrath is revealed. But chapter 2 tells us that's only the beginning. All of history is leading to this day, a judgment day, the day when Christ will return in glory and he will judge everyone. And it will be a day of wrath. Now, no one likes that idea, do they? This is one of the reasons we preach chapter by chapter through the books of the Bible. Because if I was going to preach about all the topics I thought I'd preach on, I would never preach a sermon on what Romans 2 is talking about because it doesn't make friends. It it upsets people. But this is why we, we preach like this. We struggle with the idea of God judging all of humanity. But if you think about it, I think any alternative is far worse. The idea that people get away with things for all eternity, what sort of a God is that? You know, that would mean God doesn't care. God doesn't care about justice. Now, there is a day of wrath because God is righteous and because he cares. And here is the big point our chapter is making about that day. There will be no favoritism on that day. See, the Jews thought they would get special treatment as God's chosen people. That's what he focuses on down in verses 17 to 29. We won't look at those closely this morning, grapple with them in your gospel teams during the week. Uh, But the apostle is saying, no, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, whatever your race, whatever your nationality, it doesn't matter. God will judge everyone. Like he says at verse 11, look there, there is no favoritism with God. And that's because we will all be judged on the basis of our works. Look at verse 6. He will repay each one according to his works. Now, I'm going to ask you to make sure you do not switch off during today's sermon because I'm going to come back to that and how it fits with grace at the end of the sermon, okay? So I I want to make sure. I'd hate it if today someone listened to a bit, switched off, and and thought that was the end of the sermon. So that's a, a lesson to you. I'm a realist as a preacher. I know that very occasionally happens. But... The the point is, when we stand before God on that last day, whoever you are, God will judge us according to the way we have lived here on earth. And there are two potential outcomes. We see them in verses 7 to 10. Firstly, look at verse 7. There is life. He says eternal life. 
to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honour and immortality. But then the other alternative is the path to God's wrath. Look at verse 8. But wrath and indignation to those who are self-seeking and disobey the truth, but are obeying unrighteousness. If we disobey God's truth, if we put ourselves first, if we are self-seeking, God's wrath is our fate. Now remember, he's talking about the judgment part here, not how we're saved from that judgment, not yet anyway. So what is the point he's making? He is saying it is not just those evil loving pagans out there. It's not just those, those, those people of chapter one who will be judged for the way they've lived. Everyone will be, even you Jews and even you morally superior people who have God's law and think you're so much more righteous. Everyone will be judged. There is no favoritism with God. But someone might say, what, what about if we, we, we don't know God's standards? You know, the, the Jews, they had the law. They knew that they were breaking God's law. Other people don't know right and wrong. How is that fair? It's actually a really good question, isn't it? It's a really common question at the life course that, that people ask around the tables. And, and he answered it a bit last week in chapter one. Did you have discussions about this in your gospel team like we did during the week from chapter one? He said, just by living in this world and experiencing the creation, every one of us has enough evidence to mean that we are guilty of rejecting God. Even if we never heard about the Bible, we know enough to be guilty of failing to honour God. But now he adds a bit more than that. He says, the judgment day will be fair because people will be judged according to their knowledge. Look from verse 12. He says, all those who sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all those who sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So Jews who lived with God's law will be judged for failing to keep it, but Gentiles who never heard God's law, they'll still be judged, but not by that standard. So what standard does God judge those who haven't heard his law? Well, he says Gentiles who've never heard the Ten Commandments should still know right and wrong. And that's his point in verse 14, I think. Look there. He says, so when Gentiles who do not have the law instinctively do what the law demands, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Their consciences confirm this. I think the point he's making there is uh, that a Gentile who's never heard the law can still know right from wrong. You, you shouldn't need the Ten Commandments to know that God deserves glory and honour. That was the point of chapter one. Uh, you, you shouldn't need the Ten Commandments to know not to steal, not to murder, not to be unfaithful. So when we stand before God, we'll be judged according to what we know. A Jew who knew the law would be judged according to the law. A Gentile who's never heard God's law will still be judged, but according to what they should understand from what has been revealed to them. The point is, though, God is fair. And more than that, notice there in verse 16, God won't just judge according to what we see. God judges according to the heart. He judges what people have kept secret he judges the very thoughts and inclinations of our heart. That is a very, very scary thought, isn't it? Think about this. It's easy to appear moral and upright to the people around us, but you cannot hide the reality of your heart from God's eyes. The reality is there will be a lot of hypocrites who will be exposed on the judgment day. 
people who've put on a veneer of morality to cover all sorts of secret sins. People who say, but I was a church elder. I was on the parish council. And God will say, I know how you treated your family at home. People will say, but I never committed those bad sins. God will say, I know the hate in your heart. I never committed adultery. God will say, I know the lustful thoughts you entertained and the pornography you loved. I never stole anything. God will say, I know the way you coveted and how you were never content with, with what I gave you. It's actually a very sobering thought, isn't it? That is the judgment day. And the whole point of chapter two is everyone will face it and no one will be able to complain on that day it wasn't fair and so as we read this we're meant to ask so what will happen to me on that day that's the point of this chapter when God exposes the secrets of my heart when my works are judged against the standards of his law how will I go let me tell you I will fail I will fall far short. I will deserve God's wrath. And if you think you won't fail, go back to verse 1 and start reading again because you haven't heard anything I've said this morning. If you think, I oh, know other people fail, but I'll be fine, you are exactly who chapter 2 is written for. The whole point of Romans 1 and 2 is to show us that whether you are the immoral pagan who's been involved in every sin that people haven't even heard of, or whether you are the self-righteous Jew of chapter 2, we deserve God's righteous wrath. I've purposely tried to tone down my humour today uh, because these chapters, sounds terrible, but these chapters are meant to drive us to despair. Doesn't that sound terrible? But that's what they're meant to do. It's meant to show us the reality of our situation. It's meant to get us to what we will see next week in chapter 3, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. See, chapter 2 is here so that when we get to chapter 3, every person will grasp just how much I need God's salvation. Every person will see, I need Jesus. That's what this is designed to do for us. Whatever you do, I said before, whatever you do, listen to all of today's sermon. Whatever you do, don't not come back next week. I'd hate you to just leave at the end of chapter two. That'd be like, I don't know, finishing Star Wars at the Empire Strikes Back and not going to the Return of the Jedi, for those who remember that, you see. Because chapter three is where God gives the answer to our problem. The solution is that Jesus has died to take the wrath of God that we deserve upon himself. And we accept that gift by faith alone in Christ alone. Now you might think, why not go straight to chapter three then? Why do we have to have two weeks on chapter one and chapter two? Why don't we just jump in at chapter three? Why bludgeon us into submission with, with these two chapters? I'll tell you why. It's because you can only ever understand the wonder of God's grace when you first grasp the depth of your own sin. You can only ever understand the wonder of God's grace when you understand the rightness and the certainty of your own judgment. We can only see how wonderful the light is when you've really experienced total darkness. If you think you are good enough for God, you will never be a Christian. If you think you are good enough for God, you will never grasp why you need Jesus. This is a dark chapter, but it's actually wonderful in a way because it helps us see just how beautiful the light is. 
Just to, it helps us see just how wonderful our Lord Jesus is. But there is an issue here that I haven't quite addressed yet. I alluded to it before. Have you noticed it? For those of us who have been thinking hard, you will be uncomfortable with this chapter. And I don't just mean all the talk of wrath and judgment. Look again at verses 6 and 7. It says, He will repay each one according to his works, eternal life to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honour and immortality. Or verse 13, he says, For the hearers of the law are not righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be declared righteous. That doesn't seem right to our Protestant Reformation ears, does it? Aren't we saved? And I say it every week, you know, aren't we saved by Christ alone, through faith alone? Aren't we saved by grace alone? You see, not by doing good, not by doing the law, but it seems like here he's saying that it might just be possible to earn eternal life if you persist in doing good. Now, he cannot be saying that. Because in chapter 3, he finally gets to the climax of, of this argument. He tells us there is no one righteous. He used the same language. There is no one who seeks God. The, the only way to find eternal life, the only way to be declared righteous, the only way is by faith in Jesus. The only way is if Jesus takes our sin and declares us to be right with God. No one can earn it. It's a free gift. Grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. So then given that that's a given, what, what's he saying here in verse 7 and verse 13? I think there are two legitimate possibilities and both are true from, from elsewhere in Scripture. So I'm pushing you to think a bit here and I want you to think about this in your gospel teams. The first legitimate possibility is what he's doing here is describing the Christian who has come to faith. So he's sort of jumping ahead in his argument and he's describing the person who's come to know Jesus and then because of our faith in Jesus, we're now able to do good works. We're now able to do the things that, that, that God wants us to do. Not perfectly, but by faith, where I, uh, works that previously were filthy rags are now beautiful things. And so on the judgment day, God will look at our good works as evidence of our faith in Jesus. I actually think Christians often forget that there is a judgment day. Uh, we rightly focus on the fact that we cannot earn our salvation, but our works will still be judged. We've already been declared righteous through faith in Christ. Our salvation is not at stake. But even so, our works done by faith will be judged on that day. God loves good works that flow from faith in Jesus. The key verse on this, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, where it says, For we must all appear before the tribunal of Christ, so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or worthless. See what he's saying? Our good works done in faith, the things we've done because of what Christ has done for us, they all will be rewarded by God on the judgment day. And the worthless things will, will be burnt away. There is still a judgment of works for Christians. Understand that. Don't waste your life. Use it well for Jesus. And those good works we do will be evidence of our faith on that judgment day. See, God judges the heart. He knows true faith. He knows people who, who trust in Jesus. He knows people who truly don't trust in Jesus. But the evidence that will be put forward at that tribunal, the evidence will be the good works we do because of our faith in Jesus. 
We're saved by faith alone. We're justified by faith alone. But a true and living faith will show itself. It will be evidenced by good works. And so if you go back to Romans 2, that, that is one possibility of what this is talking about here. He's talking about Christians. And on the judgment day, God will look at Christians' works, our persistence in doing good through faith in Jesus, our seeking after his honour and glory through faith in Jesus. And he'll look at that as the evidence of our faith. Now, that's certainly true from other parts of Scripture. I don't think it's the point here in this passage, so sorry for having taken so long on it, uh, even though people smarter than me think it is, but I don't think so. I think he's talking about the standard that we do not reach, because I think that makes sense of the argument when we get to chapter 3. See, I don't think Paul's talking about salvation yet in chapter 2. He's just talking about the judgment of God, and he's establishing God's standards He's talking about the fact it will be totally fair. And he's saying, if you did keep the whole law, God is fair. If you did persist in doing good and seeking after God and seeking after his honour and his glory, God is fair. If you did love God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength, if you did love your neighbour as yourself, then you would be righteous. Then you would receive eternal life. God is fair. He judges according to his law. But the problem is, no one does. So when we get to chapter 3 next week, Paul will say, no one truly does seek God. No one is righteous, not even one. And so our only hope on that judgment day is to trust in Christ and his righteousness. Our only hope is to not try to tell God how righteous I am, not try and say, I'm not as bad as the, the people out there. Our only hope is to say, I am a sinner too, but I trust in Jesus. See, that is the main point of this passage. There will be a judgment day. It is totally fair. There'll be no special leave passes because you're a Jew or you're a Gentile or you went to church or you were baptised as a child. God won't be particularly interested by the fact that you're better than someone else on that day. God isn't interested in the fact that you aren't a debauched pagan getting up to all sorts of sexual immorality and drunkenness and whatever else was in that list in chapter 1. God isn't interested in the fact that you are comparatively moral. He's not interested in the fact that you're well-respected in the community. He's not even respected, interested in the fact you're well-respected in the church community. In fact, if anything, God will hold to a higher standard those who've had greater opportunities to hear his word. God's judgment will be horrible for the churchgoer who has sat under his word week in, week out, but not turned and trusted in Christ. God's judgment will be horrible for those who've heard his word and instead of admitting their own sin, have stood in judgment over other people. This chapter is a reminder that God hates sin, but he also hates pride. And he especially hates self-righteousness. But he offers grace to both. In fact, God offers grace to anyone. He offers it to the idolatrous pagan from chapter 1 and the self-righteous Pharisee of chapter 2. God offers grace and forgiveness to anyone who admits their sin, repents and turns and trusts in Christ alone. Praise God that he is both righteous and loving. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture that even in its darkness helps us see the wonder of Jesus, just how wonderful it is that Jesus came to die for our sin.
rose again for our justification. And because we trust in him, we can know that we receive grace and mercy far beyond what we deserve. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.